Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, with a message titled, Fighting the Good Fight. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. For years now, I've been somewhat interested in the American Civil War and what a tragedy it was in a nation at that time with somewhere in the neighborhood of as many people as in Canada today. lasted four years, cost 620,000 deaths of soldiers. No one counted the wounded, those permanently scarred, and the high volume of civilian deaths. It was appalling. But when the war began, no one had even the faintest idea of what lay ahead. On July 9, 1861, the Union Army gathered to face the Confederate Army on a tiny battlefield near the little town of Manassas, Virginia, only about 50 miles away from Washington, D.C. All the people on the Union side thought it would be a short skirmish, last a few hours. The Confederates would surrender, and it would be a day of great glory. The Civil War would be over. Ladies and gentlemen of high society packed their hampers with food, put blankets and chairs into their carriages and occupied the hillside for a day of watching the battle in which they would cheer on their forces kind of like a sporting event. But the day turned into a horror. In short order, the chaos on the battlefield was terrible. No one knew what they were doing. 3,000 men lay dead on the battlefield. The Union was fleeing for their lives and the nobility joined them with a smell of blood and death in their terror-filled hearts as they raced for their lives How tragic it is to be naive. You know, the image of a battlefield and of soldiers and of warfare is one of the most common images Paul uses to describe both the Christian life and service to Jesus Christ. No, it's not the call for Christians to join the military, but Ephesians 6, 12 to 13 does say we're in warfare. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So today I want to invite you onto a battlefield as dangerous as anyone might face. It's a great spiritual battle. It's called the battle for the truth. On the one side is lined up the prince of darkness, whom Jesus called the father of lies. On the other are those who fight for the truth of the gospel. And every child of God has been called to fight. If you're a parent, you fight the battle for truth as you raise your children. If you lead a Bible study, if you're involved in evangelism, if you're a Sunday school teacher or a youth volunteer or an elder or a deacon, you're called to war. So I want to share with you the kind of battle that Christians have been given to fight. So let's begin. When anyone enters into service of Jesus, they will get entangled in a deadly struggle. That's exactly what we find in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. 
So I want you to notice from the very beginning of this verse, Paul's referring to a charge that he gave Timothy. And from back in verse 3, we learn that Timothy was to go into the hopelessly divided and confused church at Ephesus and take on several key leaders, their elders, who are also become false teachers. They're destroying the church and they're contradicting the gospel of Jesus. Timothy had a command from Paul, go in and stop them from teaching lies. Now notice that the charge has been entrusted to Timothy. The word's a legal word. It refers to something left in someone else's care for whose safety that person's responsible. It might, for instance, be given to a legal guardian who's entrusted with someone else's children. So imagine your neighbor goes on a trip and he pays you to look after his house and even has you sign a contract as to how that house is to be kept in his absence. And you're responsible now for that which doesn't belong to you. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's saying, I can't go to Ephesus to take on the false teachers there. Now, we're not sure why that was. You know, he may have had a more difficult situation to deal with, but whatever the reason, he couldn't go. And so he charged Timothy with a task. I'm entrusting you the care of the people of God in the city of Ephesus. The spiritual safety of their lives is in your hands, and you're legally responsible for them. You know, that's how your pastor often feels. He believes he's accountable before God for the people. And there's a story that comes from, you know, the time of the Puritans, and one pastor was complaining to another that his congregation had remained relatively small, to which the older, more successful, and more mature pastor said, then give thanks, for on the final day of judgment, you're going to answer for the spiritual lives of fewer people. And that is the burden of Christian leadership. God entrusts the spiritual lives of his people into their hands. And Paul's communicating that to Timothy as he goes to Ephesus. And for all of us who seek spiritual leadership, it's important to remember those things. Notice also that Paul calls Timothy his child. You know, Paul's trained Timothy. He's taught him the gospel. He's shown him how to do evangelism. He's given him minor assignments, part of his internship. And now that he's been fully trained, he's sending him to his largest assignment ever. In fact, he's sending him to the battlefield. And in the meantime, Paul hopes and prays for the future of the church in Ephesus because it rests solidly on Timothy's shoulders. He's saying, I'm counting on you to win this battle so much is at stake. So let's go on. Paul notes that his charge, along with the training Timothy has received, is in keeping with prophecies previously made about Timothy. So what's Paul speaking about? Well, go ahead to 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, where we read, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. What that seems to refer to is a formal calling. It's probably an ordination. The elders laid hands on Timothy, and no doubt some would have prophesied as to what Timothy was called upon to do. That was common in the early church. Now, whatever was said during the time of Timothy's call, you know, what prophecies were spoken, Paul reminds Timothy that a part of them had been the call to engage in a battle. See, some of the elders must have prophesied of the great struggle for truth in which Timothy would find himself. They might have encouraged him and exhorted him. And Paul says, do you see, when I gave you this assignment, that's what God had called you to do all along. Now, Paul says, Timothy, go and fight for the truth. So what have we learned so far? Well, several things. We learn that Christian ministry and most certainly Christian leadership 
is always a call to arms. God's ministers must fight for the truth, for that is a part of their calling. And if you doubt that, let me give you a little history lesson. First of all, all the later books in the New Testament, as the church was being founded and forged, you know, books like the pastoral epistles, Hebrews, First and Second Peter, Jude, the letters of John, Revelation, all of them depict a terrible struggle against false teaching and false doctrine, both outside of the church and more insidiously inside the church. And as the first century was closing, the church of Jesus Christ was locked into a battle, not so much with the world outside, although there was that, but it was a battle among their own ranks. It was a battle for truth inside the church and inside the faith. It was always like that. I mean, what do you think happened at Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments? Well, the elders of Israel had made a golden calf, and they had told Israel that this was the God that brought them out of Egypt. You know, or read the great struggle in Israel between the true and the false prophets. Or listen to Jesus' battle against the Pharisees and the Sadducees about what it was that the Bible actually taught. It was always a battle for the truth. And then after the apostolic era, throughout church history, there has been a great struggle for the truth, and it's gone on and on. In AD 325 at Nicaea, the church fought over the doctrine of the Trinity, and the truth won out. Great men like Athanasius fought this battle at a great personal cost to himself. In the early 400s, Augustine did battle with the heretic Pelagius, the man who denied original sin. It was R.C. Sproul that wrote that if Augustine had not won that battle, there would never have been a reformation. And then, of course, by logical extension, your church would not have existed. that we celebrate Thanksgiving this month, we wanted to make sure to express our gratitude for you, our listeners. Your encouragement, prayers, gifts all mean so much. We're also grateful for your notes, letting us know that Back to the Bible Canada is impacting your daily walk with Christ. Sarah wrote, Dr. John's stories illustrate so clearly how to live out the truths of Scripture. Jordan wrote, your message was so timely for my heart. And special thanks to you for making this Bible teaching ministry possible. And don't forget to request your 2022 scripture calendar based on Dr. John's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. It's our free Bible resource this month. Or if you'd like to make a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. In AD 451, at Chalcedon, the church fought over the doctrine of the full deity and full humanity of Christ, and again, the truth won out. In the Middle Ages, there was an onslaught against the doctrine of salvation. Church leaders, elders, were arguing for works theology. And so God raised up men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others. And because of that, the way of salvation was safeguarded. Imagine if you had never heard how to be saved. Well, the truth is, there were countless people in church in the Middle Ages who never heard it in their lives. Many of us don't know 
that we've inherited the victory of the great battles that were fought before us. But did you think that the battles were now over? So today, as I see it, the battle for truth surrounds itself around three major themes. The first is the battle that began in the early 20th century. It was also called the battle for the Bible. In this battle, there have emerged a number of prominent themes. The first surrounds itself around the question of inerrancy. We're fighting for a view of the Bible, which says that the Bible can be entirely trusted in every single detail. The Chicago Declaration of Biblical Inerrancy said, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness of God's saving grace in individual lives. In other words, if you can't trust what the Bible says about history or morality, how can you trust what it says about salvation? See, this book is either totally and completely God's word in all its details, or it is not. We're fighting against liberal theology which denies the inerrancy of this book. In Western Europe, liberal theology so devastated the church that it's not secularism or foes from without that destroyed the German church, for example. But liberal theology alone destroyed the church so that most German cities today have not one single Bible-believing church among them. And a second issue in the battle for the Bible is in the area of the sufficiency of Scripture. When we say that the Bible is sufficient, it means that we don't need any more inspired or inerrant words What God has given us in this book, the Bible, is enough. It's sufficient. So no more holy books, no private revelation or contemporary word of prophecy can be allowed to state doctrinal truth. We stand opposed to those who believe their private revelations will be the basis for the life of the church. What we have in the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness. Well, the other two issues of today is the fight for the uniqueness of Christ. You know, Acts 4 verse 12 says it well, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we fight for the uniqueness of Christ and Christ as the only Savior and only way to the Father. And the last great issue is the issue of sexuality, what it means to be a man and a woman and what sexual morality looks like for believers. See, that's the battle for truth that we fight today. And Christian leaders can't ignore this fight. What's at stake is whether or not people can hear a word from God and find their way to salvation. This is something every Christian must be interested in. Luther said that if we ignore the place where the battle is now being fought, we are no soldier of Christ at all. You know, future generations who have not yet heard of Christ are at stake in this battle. Well, let's go back to our text. Verse 18b to 19a reads, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. Now, did you notice that Paul says, fight the good fight or wage the good warfare? So for starters, let's notice that if you're a spirit-filled believer, that none of us are looking for a fight. In fact, the people who like fights are the least likely to fight the good fight. And secondly, what a tragedy many churches have when fights are being waged. I mean, we've often fought all the wrong fights, carnal ones. The last thing the church needs is caustic Christians. 
but there's a need to fight the good fight. And so what should we fight for? I think Paul gives us three answers. First, make sure the cause is about the truth. And no, I don't mean he said and she said issues. I mean about the truth of the gospel. I like it said that believers will try to get along with anyone. We will compromise about anything and make room for all and always be willing to be known as men and women of tolerance and acceptance, except in this one thing of which we are in deadly earnest. We will fight to the death. The truth of the gospel is revealed in Scripture. Around this we can't bend because we know that the salvation of untold men and women is at stake. And in this, please note that our struggle is not against people, or as Paul says, against flesh. Now listen to 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, and that's the good fight. Second, if we are to fight the good fight, we must be sure we fight in faith. Notice Paul says, holding faith. And he means by that, in our battle, we're actively putting our trust in God and in his revealed will in Scripture. We're not trusting in our view of things, but in what God has objectively said. We're saying, as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. That is, we're not concerned about the spirit of the day or the popularity of the doctrines we preach, but rather we're concerned about the faith, proclaiming what God declares to be true. Third, if we're going to fight the good fight, we need to make sure we act with integrity. The word here is a good conscience. In other words, am I acting in a way that's consistent with Christ-like behavior? There was once a very famous Christian apologist who was carrying on in secret sexual sin, and he cautioned his victims not to report him. He said, the souls of men and women are at stake. But his conscience was already seared as with a hot iron. He was incapable of fighting any fight at all. Look at verses 19b to 20. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, we don't know a lot about Hymenaeus and Alexander. You know, they were elders and Paul excommunicated them. We don't really know, you know, what they taught except for one short line that we find in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 17b-19. It says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. So what exactly they taught about the resurrection isn't clear, but the effects were. So Paul did what he had to do, and he removed them from fellowship in the church. And behind the phrase, handing them over to Satan, is the understanding that the whole world lies under the dominion of Satan, father of lies. And when you disconnect from the church, you move out of the protection of Christ, and Satan has access to you because you're without instruction and discipline and exhortation. And Paul's hope is that this action should so shock these men that they'd be brought to their senses and stop blaspheming. Now, Paul compares the faith of Hymenaeus and Alexander to a shipwreck. You know, a vessel that was supposed to sail them to their goal of salvation now lies ruined against the rocks. False doctrines do that. They destroy what little faith an individual has. And a faith destroyed is often more difficult to rebuild than to give faith to someone who's never had it. The battlefield for truth is littered with the wrecks of ruined lives. 
You know, what a terrible thing to be handed over to Satan. When Satan took on Job, he killed his family and destroyed his wealth. When an evil spirit came upon King Saul, he's filled with rage and he ended up murdering 85 priests in Nob, the city of priests, and finally witnessed the destruction of his kingdom and his family. And when Judas came under Satan's dominion, he betrayed Christ and the events led to his own suicide. Satan is a cruel taskmaster, and his chief aim is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he has killed and destroyed many. To be disconnected from the church of Christ and under Satan's dominion is something that should fill all of us with horror. But that is the picture of the field of battle. And there is something that we should all remember. Don't let that horror happen to you. So here's the charge. Teenager in high school, fight the good fight. Mom or dad raising your sons and daughters, fight the good fight. Church servants, fight the good fight. And all of us, pray for your leaders that they may fight the good fight. For to us has been given a charge that we would hold the truth up high, that we would be a pillar and buttress of truth. And this is the only hope for a lost and ruined humanity. For if we will let the pillars fall, so many will have no hope. But God is faithful. Therefore, God's people fight the good fight. John, thanks so much for your message. I have to wonder, how do we balance, though, being a warrior for truth and yet be gracious and kind? Yeah, speaking the truth in love, I think that's uh, what we're talking about here. And it is so important because, um, especially when you get to the book of Revelation, uh, the church of Ephesus, um, you know, the whole history of Ephesus, they had been dealing with false teaching, and that's what we're finding here. And, uh, and of course, um, in the end, Jesus had to say to them, but you've lost your first love. And so it, it is possible to, you know, to fight the battle for the truth. In the end of the day, you're just caustic. And I think we know of, you know, Christian movements that have been that way in local churches and individuals. So it's a danger for us at every significant level. So I think one of the things that we're always going to have to come to terms with when we battle for the truth that uh, we ask ourselves, were we kind? Were we loving? Were we giving people an opportunity to turn in grace from error to truth? Those are the questions. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada broadcasts the teaching of the Bible so that people might grow in their understanding of God's infinite grace and the gift of their salvation. Well, this month in churches and around family tables, many will name the gifts received and added to that perhaps a prayer of praise. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. In preparation for a year of gratitude, we invite you to request your free 2022 scripture calendar based on Dr. Newfeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. The calendar includes inspiring images of the cross, reflections upon the promises in God's word, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and our daily Bible reading plan. Quantities are limited, so to receive your free copy today or to send a gift to support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at one 800 
663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.